Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Hello, I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. Thank you for coming. Many of you frequent our breakfast thought leadership events, which we do amongst uh, in, in association, amongst others, with the Cass Business School, who continue to kindly host some of these events. And I'm delighted that this morning Lloyds of London joins the roster of the partners that Editorial Intelligence has. What is the point of these breakfasts? Quite simply, to encourage good ideas sharing and to discuss key topics of the day with leading thinkers and figures. And the audience is no less significant than the panel. I'm going to say that you are being recorded and filmed and podcast, and it's a little bit late to exempt yourself, but you may by taking yourself out of the sight line of a camera and not speaking when it is your opportunity to do so if you are shy, and to obviously turn off your mobile phones or your mobile phones if we were in America. And with that, I thank you, and I hand over to Kamal Ahmed, who is the business editor of the Sunday Telegraph, part of Telegraph Media Group. Thank you, Kamal. Thank you, Julia. Um, uh, welcome, everyone. As uh, Julia says, I'm Kamal Ahmed. I'm the business editor of the uh, Sunday Telegraph. I see we're all a little bit risk-averse this morning because no one has sat in the front rows. Maybe that's a signal of uh, where our minds are uh, uh, today. I mean, as Julia says, uh, we're here to talk about risk and uh, reputation. And that obviously is a pretty complicated uh, matter. Uh, looking through the guest list last night, uh, there are lots of people here who are experts in risk. And there are lots of people here who are experts in communication. Uh, uh, and often it's about how those two things work together that, is about, uh, that, that gets to the heart of how uh, you, uh, as, as companies and corporations and government departments and bits of Whitehall, uh, actually uh, deal uh, with risk. Uh, clearly, over the last uh, 18 months, in one part of the capitalist system, the finance sector, the metrics of risk have completely and utterly changed. Uh, and how we manage that and what we do with that is an incredibly uh, important and, uh, at times, faintly mind-numbing uh, process. Um, it's interesting, thinking around uh, the whole risk issue, if you think about uh, the banking sector uh, in 2006, you wouldn't be having the conversations you would have been having now. How many people really understood within the banks themselves the type of risks uh, they were facing and what the outcome uh, of the key risk, the seizing up of the wholesale markets, would actually be uh, for them. And also, fundamentally changing, I think this is one of the most important things uh, for us, fundamentally changing uh, the role of government and its involvement uh, in uh, markets. Uh, uh, and that is something that, uh, again, raises uh, new risk uh, metrics uh, for everyone. Clearly, it's about how it quantifiable is any risk uh, 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 for an organisation. And about reputational risk, something which uh, is, is harder uh, uh, to quantify, um, possibly in an actuarial sense, but is also possibly, as Toyota have discovered uh, over the last uh, month, one of the most important issues, particularly if you're a consumer-facing uh, uh, organisation. Uh, we've had issues like Eurostar, uh, a company that has worked incredibly hard uh, to, to build itself out of 
a mediocre uh, reputation uh, at times, um, uh, suddenly uh, uh, hit uh, uh, by the way it responded to uh, the wrong kind of snow. And what did the public think about that and what effect did that have uh, on its business? How did it understand the risk of uh, uh, snow getting into a certain type of bit of its engine and short-circuiting some of the electricals? And then how did it deal with that communication-wise, but also, frankly, in terms of actually redoing the engines themselves and dealing with uh, a lot of very upset um, uh, 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 passengers? We have an rem a remarkably um, uh, august uh, panel, uh, as Julia said, um, uh, here today, who I'm just going to briefly uh, uh, introduce, and then they're each going to speak uh, for uh, five minutes. I am under strict uh, instructions that I will butt in. in uh, I'm a nice guy, so in a Dable Dimbleby fashion rather than a Jeremy Paxman fashion, uh, to stop you at the five-minute uh, uh, moment. Directly to my left, uh, someone who needs very little introduction, actually, Lord Peter Levine. Um, the chairman of Lloyd's uh, since uh, 2002. Someone who has a really remarkable perspective given um, uh, his, his wide experience uh, both in Whitehall um, and uh, in business. Going through his CV last night is actually, is actually making sure I didn't read out too much about, uh, about his uh, background. He was asked um, by Michael Hesseltine to be a personal advisor at the Ministry of Defence. He became Chief of Defence Procurement a position he held for uh, six years. Uh, between 1992 and 1997, he was advisor to the Prime Minister on efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, I'm not sure um, uh, how John Major judged the risk of one Anthony Linton Blair at that time. Uh, he was also uh, chairman of Docklands Light Railway and chairman and chief executive of Canary Wharf uh, Limited. He was made a life peer in July 1997 and later became vice chairman of Deutsche Bank uh, in the UK. Currently holds four non-executive directorships, Chairman of General Dynamics UK Limited, and is also on the boards of Haymarket Group, uh, with Lord Hesseltine again, uh, Total uh, SA, and China Construction Bank. He's also a member of the House of Lords Select Committee for Economic Affairs. To his left is Mark Bukowski, uh, a man well known to everybody in the media, uh, one of the leading uh, uh, PR practitioners uh, in the business, uh, founded uh, the eponymous uh, his eponymous agency in 1987. I see from your list, Mark, uh, that you uh, have Eurostar uh, on your client list. Also naming Norwich Union and Michael Jackson, uh, two sadly defunct uh, uh, brands now. Um, um, uh, but um, I'm sure, um, uh, Mark, you can bring us up to date on where you are with those two. Um, uh, uh, obviously, anyone uh, who knows media industry um, uh, uh, will, will hear Mark uh, uh, giving the most interesting uh, perspectives on, um, on uh, media and celebrity uh, issues. Uh, he has written uh, two books, In Propaganda, The Art of the Publicity Stunt, uh, maybe sometimes how to get yourself uh, out of a hole, and The Fame Formula, which is about Hollywood and the great PRs uh, there. Uh, to my right is uh, Tommy Helsby, uh, the chairman of Kroll Eurasia, joining Kroll in 1981, uh, he has been conducting and managing complicated fraud investigations, due diligence for transactions and litigation uh, support. Based in London since 1991, he is the chairman of Europe, Middle East and Africa region, uh, uh, which deals with some of the most uh, complicated uh, uh, cases across um, the region. Before joining 
uh, Kroll, Tommy was managing editor of commercial and technical newsletters for a major Dutch publisher. He's also worked as a freelance uh, journalist. Uh, on the far left, uh, John Cridland, again, someone needs little introduction, Deputy Director General of the CBI, uh, responsible for the management of the CBI's policy and membership activities, key spokesman uh, on business, also the Vice Chair of the National Learning and Skills Council and a member of the Council of Cranfield uh, University. Uh, before that, he was on the Low Pay Commission and on the ACAS uh, Council. Um, and... I will write Philip Booth. I'm just going to find my note on uh, Philip somewhere here. Bear with me. This is a risk I didn't uh, uh, judge before I walked into the building. Where's my note on Philip? <laughs> Philip, would you like to introduce yourself uh, <laughs> briefly? Um, uh, I know you're an actuary. You're the person who actually is, is the person who does the numbers. Uh, uh, we should well, say. Once upon a time, possibly. Yes. But, uh, yeah. I noticed my biography didn't come round with the others, but I thought that's oh. just, just because you circulated everybody else's biography to everybody else. Okay. Um, I'm Philip Booth, and I'm Professor of Insurance and Risk Management at Cass Business School, and also Editorial and Programme Director at the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a free market think tank. Thank you very much, Philip, for sparing my grotesque blushes there. Um, Lord Levine, uh, five minutes on where we are with risk and reputation. Well, thank you very much for the introduction. Good morning, everybody. Um, I see that uh, our views that uh, the branding department is of little effect have probably been borne out because uh, despite all their hard work, um, Julian introduced us as Lloyds of London, which is a name we've been trying to lose for the last seven years. And, Kamal, you talked about the financial services sector being thoroughly changed, clearly having been a terrible mess, which, of course, as a number of people here will understand, frankly, it isn't. The banks have been in a terrible mess. The rest of the sector, particularly insurance, we're actually doing pretty well. So getting the message across is important, and uh, perhaps we haven't been uh, too good at doing that. I mean, if I sat here um, two years ago and posed a sort of uh, strange question, you know, what do the following have in common? Uh, Lehman Brothers, Toyota, John Terry... Uh, AIG and Eurostar, I think people would have some difficulty in, in, in finding the link. Today, it, it wouldn't be that difficult. Um, I've, I've seen quite a lot of this from fairly close quarters. And I think perhaps the two best examples of it, uh, in my experience, uh, have been Lloyd's and Canary Wharf. Now, 20 years ago, uh, the name of Lloyd's, and by this I mean the insurance company, because we've, sort of, we, we've changed places with uh, Lloyd's Bank, where 20 years ago the, the chairman of Lloyd's Bank went around saying, no, no, we don't have anything whatsoever to do with Lloyd's. You know, that's <laughs> completely. And um, more recently, I get asked where I go to places, you know, we've seen Lloyd's are doing really well, but what's happened to your bank? And I said, not our bank. <laughs> so the, the perception and reputation is terribly important. And how do you actually deal with that? Now, I, I saw it more directly and more immediately when I went to Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf, for those of you who may remember, uh, back in 1993, when I went there, uh, there were lots of articles in the papers about how long will it be before they put the tape around the buildings and they just have the wind blowing through the empty windows and it'll be the end of the world. 
And all of a sudden, today, there's 100,000 people working there, and I think that it's a pretty remarkable operation. One of the things I think you don't do is to say, well, let's change the name. Let's, let's call it something else. I wonder how many people here know what AIG is called today. Does anybody know what it's called today? Chartists, exactly. Well, I'm speaking to a very knowledgeable audience. But I think if you talk to them out there and ask them who Chartist is, they, they would have some difficulty in finding out. Um, Nora Junior have decided to change their name to Aviva. I don't quite understand why, but anyway, they have done. But at Lloyd's, I think, very intelligently, it was decided that after 300 years, the name worked pretty well. And uh, if you have some bumps along the way, well, you've got to, get, got to get over it. Same happened at Canary Wharf. We, we had a perception there when we started that um, nobody wanted to go and work there. The place was empty. It was in the middle of nowhere. And when I started, I would phone up chairman and chief executive of a large corporation and say, come down and see us. And they'd say, um, uh, well, uh, um, uh, where is it? Uh, it's sort of over there somewhere, isn't it? And um, eventually, I'd get them to come down, invite one of them down for lunch, and every single person who came turned up 25 minutes early. Why? Because the secretary said, you're going to Canary Wharf, you better start after breakfast if you're going for lunch, you'll never get there. Um, and then when they got there, they found not only that he wasn't that far away, um, but it was actually quite a nice place. Then we found out, for example, that um, somebody was coming down for the first time, they jump in a cab. They said to the taxi driver, take me to Canary Wharf. What do you want to go there for? I mean, you're going to be in my cab all day. So we got all the taxi drivers down. We had three giant tea parties. We gave them a very good party. Next time somebody jumped to the cab, said, I want to go to Canary Wharf. Wonderful place. Have you ever been down there before? <laughs> you, you, have to, you have to get this uh, uh, branding issue right. You have to get the reputation right. But you can't just say, hey, everybody, we're great, don't worry about it, it's not really a problem. You've actually got to fix the problem, then you've got to get the message across. Uh, Kamal mentioned Eurostar. I won't have a word said against Eurostar. I had to go to Paris yesterday. Went over there. When we came out of the tunnel on the French side, there was a blizzard. When I was at a meeting in, uh, in, in Paris yesterday at lunchtime on the 47th floor, looking out of the window, there were lumps of snow coming down this, this size. You couldn't see a thing. And I was um, resigned to the fact that I was going to have to stay the night in Paris with no change of clothes, nothing, just hope for the best and see if I could get here today. And yet, I got on Eurostar last night. The train left on the minute, arrived 10 minutes late. And the only reason it arrived 10 minutes late was because there was a speed restriction, not in France, but they, as the driver told us, great apology, when we got into Kent. Now, um, I think that the whole issue of reputation is so important because it's perception. And I think the perception is the thing you have to think about. That's what you see when you pick up the papers in the morning. What do you, what do you know about this? Is it going to work or not? So in my book, you have to work on the perception first. You've got to get the reality right, and then people will listen. And, you know, we have, and I'll, I'll, I will finish, I will keep strictly to your timetable, uh, for those who, who are worried about where they can go uh, when they have a problem looming, uh, we do actually at Lloyd's now sell 
death and disgrace insurance. <laughs> very, very, very good, Lord Levine. I hopefully won't need to take that out. But um, can I just ask you just briefly before we move to Philip? Did, how, how did you go about, let's look at Canary Wharf example, mapping that risk rather than simply thinking, wouldn't it be a clever idea to get the, all the cabbies in for a bit of a knees up and wouldn't that be nice because that's a word of mouth issue? How did you map the risk of what Canary Wharf uh, and the Docklands faced? I'm glad you asked me that question. Um, <laughs> That's why answer a slightly different one. No, 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 I, I, I meant it. Um, you, you're absolutely right. So what we did was this. I went down there, I hadn't worked there before, spent three months there and thought, well, what's the matter with this place? Seems all right to me. So we thought we should find out exactly the answer to your question. We went around and we interviewed virtually everybody who was there, at least a very good representative sample of them. And they told us, well, the problem is the transport's no good. And we said, but, you know, we've just opened the Limehouse Link and the Docklands Light Railway works now. Um, and they said, yes, you're right. We never really thought, you know, we suffered for so long we hadn't realized it had changed. And so we recognized, as I said before, with the secretaries of people who weren't there, uh, that they would believe that this hadn't been fixed. And so we said, well, now, how? It doesn't matter about the bosses. If, if the boss says, I'm going to Canary Wharf, and his secretary, who runs his life, says, I wouldn't go there if I were you, because it'll take you all day, we've got to change her mind, not his. And so, um, with uh, some imagination, one of the things we did, we took a series of advertisements on the underground, in the two um, stations where you have you know, the, the, the big posters that go all the way around the wall, which you have to look at even if you don't want to, because you're standing on the platform waiting for the train to come. And so we had this quiz, a quiz like, um, how long will it take you to get from this station to Canary Wharf? How many restaurants are there at Canary Wharf? How many shops at Canary Wharf? How many people live there? Uh, what can you do in the summer? We had all these questions. And you had to answer these questions. If you got them right, you got a prize, a £10 gift voucher or something. It was amazing what effect this would do. So I think just to add to what I said before, you do quite rightly, as you said, Cameron, you have to analyze the problem scientifically. You've got to find out. And then you've got to think of some uh, fairly unusual ways of addressing that problem and getting a message across. Once you get it across, then you're okay. And, and I'll just say this. How did I know when I thought we'd won? Well, many of you will be familiar with Private Eye and the, and the guy in Private Eye knows everything about everything. And um, after I'd been there for nearly two years, when we thought we had it fixed, I was having my hair cut in the barbers, and the, the man in the next chair was one of these people who was telling the barber what was wrong with the government, the tax system, the world, the economy, everything else. He knew everything. And then he suddenly said, and then there's that Canary Wharf. You know, what he said was no good. He said, it's amazing. Now, I always knew it was fantastic. And it was at that point... Uh, that I thought we got the message over. Thank you very much. Um, Philip, a few thoughts on, uh, uh, to kick us off. Thank you. I want to tie together the subjects of risk, regulation, uh, risk reputation and, and regulation, especially in the financial sector on which I want to focus. But colleagues who work in, in other areas, such as transport and the utilities, tell me that the same arguments apply there too. Now, let us cast our minds back to the development of sophisticated financial institutions in the UK and to 
a lesser extent on continental Europe back in the 18th and 19th centuries. This was a, a period in the UK, at least, of astonishingly liberal regulation, to which the market responded by developing highly sophisticated institutions and commercial brands which were marketed, um, the main selling point of which was their reputation, especially their reputation um, for prudence. Now, let's take... Um, Three examples, two very brief and, and one not quite so brief. The London Stock Exchange began life in its current form um, in, in 18, 1801. And from the earliest times, it very consciously communicated a reputation for soundness. Um, from the primitive chalking up of um, uh, unreliable counterparties as lame duck in the coffee houses of Change Alley, um, through the separation of broking and uh, 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 jobbing capacities in 1909, to the sophisticated rules uh, and clearing mechanisms that it then um, uh, developed to ensure that transactions were reliably settled. Banks during the same sort of period were more or less unregulated, and they communicated their soundness, um, often by requiring, for example, double liability for shareholders, by that capital structure with uh, large uh, tranches of preference shares. Um, and in fact, as, as crudely and um, effectively, though, uh, by procuring extraordinarily imposing looking and secure buildings, most of which are now pubs or restaurants. And um, we shouldn't forget also the various different corporate forms that banks took at this time, mutual as well as proprietary, uh, to communicate different messages and reputations um, to customers. In the life insurance market in the 1850s, after a series of scandals, um, instead of responding as we're responding now to the banking crisis by uh, tightening regulatory oversight, uh, a much more subtle thing w w was done. The linchpin of a new uh, regulatory regime um, from 1870 um, was information disclosure and a reliable and effective mechanism for winding up a bust life company, ensuring that um, all the creditors, um, who were creditors of the company, uh, actually uh, took the losses that, um, that they were responsible for. And this system was extraordinarily successful. In 100 years, there were only two winding ups of life insurance companies, and in neither of them did policyholders lose any money. And during this period, insurance companies actually used to compete on how conservative their reserving bases were. That only changed um, with the uh, increase in the statutory regulation of, of insurance um, post-1970, when insurance companies started to compete to a much greater extent on how big their bonuses were. The regulator would look after everything else. Now, it's tempting to think that this is all the product of a bygone age and that we now need bureaucratic regulation to do this sort of job which was once uh, done by sound behaviour, good ethical behaviour, prudence, brand building, and, and so on. But the evidence, in fact, runs the other way. Um, statutory regulation and, um, uh, uh, and also providing financial guarantees uh, have um, changed the priorities of financial institutions. Owners and managers of financial institutions remember, are, are paid to respond very rapidly to small changes in incentives. So if regulators make the building of um, prudence and the promotion of a, a, a brand and reputation for prudence slightly less vi um, valuable because they are actually providing that service themselves by regulating um, the in institutions and guaranteeing um, uh, policyholders, creditors, and, and so on, um, then you're less, less likely to get um, uh, brands built, the 
cornerstone of which is, is a reputation uh, for prudence. And over now 20 or 30 years, we've seen, particularly in the US, and we shouldn't forget that the um, origin of the financial crisis was very much in the US, including for those um, banks in the UK which have had problems. Over the US now, over 20 or 30 years, you've had increasing regulatory oversight, but more particularly the bailing out by the US government, the Federal Reserve, uh, and other responsible bodies, not just of depositors, whom you can make a, a strong economic argument that you have to protect when a financial institution goes bust, but of money market mutual funds and um, also unsecured creditors of financial institutions. Um, the ferocious detail of financial regulation, I think, also disorientates the senior management of financial companies and causes them to look upwards towards regulators instead of focusing on projecting a reputation of soundness and prudence um, uh, to, to their customers. Compliance with complex regulation and, and back covering against the prospect of retrospective action, uh, together with encouraging a box-ticking mentality, again, I think has crowded out the perceived need for ethics and customer satisfaction at the heart of many financial firms. And um, I would argue that this, together with implicit government guarantees that stand behind um, many financial institutions, most financial institutions these days, has made establishing a reputation for prudence relatively less valuable. So how might we restore um, reputation in, in the financial sector? I think only by strengthening the incentives that firms um, have to nurture one. I don't agree with the precise mechanisms that um, have been proposed, but I do think that the Bank of England is barking up the right tree when it's uh, come up with its own suggested regulatory responses uh, to deal with the banking uh, crisis. The emphasis of regulation should be on transparency, um, the publication of information to the market, and making sure that financial firms are responsible for their own financial decisions. And we should move back in that, that direction um, in insurance um, too. Um, marketing a, a reputation for good ethics, uh, risk aversion and, and prudence needs to be a crucial part of the strategy um, of financial companies. Um, but, if they are to nurture, um, but, but to nurture that, we need to move firms uh, away from regulatory discipline and back to um, market discipline as the primary motivator of, of company strategy. Thank you, Philip. I just wondered, it's interesting the point you made, just before going to um, uh, Mark, is how much is, uh, can risk be owned and uh, controlled by the company or corporation itself? And how much is it uh, uh, needs to be understood from the market point of view? It's interesting, Paul Polman um, uh, at Davos uh, spoke about, you spoke about transparency and publishing to the market. But then, of course, the market responds in certain ways, uh, which is then often driven by the short term rather than the medium or long term. And that in itself becomes a risk to the organization. And at Unilever, obviously, they, they have changed uh, the way they publish information to try and get a more longer term view uh, and to shield themselves to an extent from the short term risk of market moves on uh, share price. I just wonder what your thought was on, on getting that correct balance of the ownership of the risk internally uh, transparency, I think no one would argue with that, but also what transparency then allows the market to do in pushing around what your company then gets up to. Yeah, I, um, there is this perception, I think, that markets think in, in a short-term way because of the way, you know, way in which share prices are volatile and, and so on. But, uh, but of course, what markets do is 
look at the long term and try and reflect the value of a company and its future profits and and, and so on, um, which they're expected to generate in the long term, and and try to express that in a share price which can be volatile in the short term. So one is always taking instant decisions um, relating to the perceived value of a company, but those decisions are based on the perceived long-term added value of a company, if if you see what I mean. So um, I think the idea that markets think short-term and somehow politicians and regulators um, uh, simply sort of look... uh, um, look in a non-self-interested way at the, um, uh, uh, the sort of long-term uh, uh, aspects of um, market reputation and, and, and so on is a mistake. You know, if um, uh, the... Um, you know, if, 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 a, if a company hasn't got a sound long-term reputation and is expected to... to uh, d- d- generate profits from its activities in the long term, then its, it, its value will fall in the short term. Sorry, I've not explained that very well, but... Uh, yeah. I'm sure we'll come okay. back to that from, from the audience. Mark, when it's all going wrong, what, what on earth do you do? Well, you correct a couple of things. Uh, Eurostar was a long uh, a client many, many years ago, Carlin, as you know. Um, I was managing, uh, sorry, I was late. I was managing somebody's risk who had forgotten where they parked their car. So I was talking them in before they got clamped. Um, I think it's interesting I'm third in now, and we haven't yet talked about the digital world we now all exist in. And uh, I think that um, if we consider the number of brands that have made the news over the last month, John Terry, Eurostar, Toyota, what has driven the chaotic state they find themselves in? It clearly is the social space. Um, As we march forward with many agencies, consultancies trying to offer advice, we clearly don't know where this is leading us. We have no idea what the revolution is going to do about how we control and manage reputation. It has been a world where professionals and consultants have lived in the push world, where we can push messages out. Now, fundamentally, we have to go to the core of our brand and understand what we offer. And we can't offer what we think the audience wants to hear, because the audience will tell us what they hear every moment. The speed is frightening. Um, I was dubbed a veteran the other day, and um, I suppose I have been in this business a long time, starting off as I did in, in the arts, and what you understood then is the power of word of mouth. You would persuade a journalist to perhaps give you some coverage before a theatre production would open, and you would hope that the critic would enjoy the show enough to actually generate positive reviews that you could market. That's gone. You know, there's no first night for critics any longer. You know, as soon as the first preview has started, the audience are beginning to talk about it. So public relations, and my job, is about managing and evaluating the public conversation. Um, there's been a classic, um, um, how should we say, snafu very recently, where the Outdoor Advertising Association hired an ad agency to try and engage people in conversation about the power of advertising, which is beginning to disintegrate. Um, and a very interesting new startup agency of some quite good um, advertising folk decided to put on buses and tube, sto- um, tube, uh, tube stations the slogan, Working Mums Make Bad Mothers Discuss. 
within five minutes of that first ad going up, a slogan to generate conversation, there were over 430 comments on Mumsnet generating a forum. And these people, were, these women, were so incensed about this glib, archaic 80s ad man sort of, um, um, of slogan, they were targeting the agency's clients. They were saying, let's, you know, targeting, uh, target them to drop this agency was first big win of two and a half million pounds spend. Now, if we, th th there is so many um, words being used now. I, I noticed in the FT this week, people talking about the, you know, the brand narrative. How do you develop the brand narrative? But clearly, the structure of the way we deal with a crisis and the speed of how we deal with a crisis and the structure internally of how we, we put forward spokespeople. Can't really now, even over the last couple of years, come up with that one paragraph soundbite to throw into Kamal or into the Today programme. And we just have to be resilient to be able to know how an organisation gets out of its bubble, suffocated by hubris, and actually tackle how it's going to manage it, because it's emotional. Toyota is hit by an emotional wave of irrational behaviour. People jumping out of cars, being told by American radio stations, get out. Filtering out there this soundbite of two people calling emergency services, crashing a car. It wasn't a Toyota vehicle. Cars are recalled every day. But what is happening, why Toyota is in problem, because the vacuum that they have left open is being filled by the, by the public conversation who feel they have an appointment. The same with Eurostar. And the reaction of a brand to sort of wait and stand back and see where it goes is wrong. PR folk are pretty good listeners. And when Twitter... Um, who um, a very leading advertising agent told me when I, when I brought up to a client the power of what Twitter was going to do for them, um, they argued this was a flash in a pan, will soon reach, by the end of next year, a billion users. That's a billion people out there. Now, how the hell do you understand what it is to come back to systems of metrics, coming back to key emotions, key targets, and how you evaluate those and how you react to them and the structure of how you react to them? Um, in, 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 in the outback of Afghanistan at the moment or in the in Swat Valley of Pakistan, you know, in the training camps, they're training these kids to deal with digital media, not just building AID bombs. I had a fascinating conversation with the, the man who had the PSYOPs operation for the British Army at the moment who feel we're failing. Our response is to produce multilingual newspapers which the reaction back from some of the Iraqis and Afghans who have produced this, this literature is, please, can you print it in softer paper? Because 85% of the audience are illiterate. So we're using 20th century models of communication for people who are using 21st century digital communications to create chaos. So it's, it's a, you know, a final, it's a sobering thought to think, how are we going to understand and how are we going to structure some very big organizations who are lumbering, who have regulations, who have governance, how are we going to be able to respond quickly and not let the markets 
and the conversation get out of our control. Thank you very much, Mark. Mark, what, um, how, you've asked the how question there a couple of times. How does, do corporations and how good are they at integrating a notion of what the digital space means for them um, as organisations? Some are brilliant and some are, are frightened of it. Some people don't understand it. Um, I say to a number of people who do a lot of work in this area, you, you, know, you need to use it. Even if you're a voyeur, you need to understand its potential because it's, it's enormous. Um, I think some of the best practice at the moment is ASDA, um, who have um, mapped their uh, corporate comms with um, a digital integration. And I think, I don't know if, if you heard the story just before Christmas that they were under attack by an employer on a packing line who posted up on a social networking site the fact that every, um, every chicken that was coming out of this production part was being licked. So it was a chicken licking thing that was going out. And, you know, and immediately there was a panic. Within an hour of this, of this uh, ridiculous clip going up on YouTube, the head of comms, went straight down to um, the, uh, the unit where this issue was taking place, got a, um, got, got a, flick, uh, got a camera, digital camera, interviewed everybody, um, got their perception on this guy, got the, the people on the line who worked, the co-workers, talking about this guy was, you know, this guy didn't do this, he was a complete lunatic, and just got the emotion. And they were shocked and appalled that this sort of person was actually drawing their own reputation into that. That was straight up on YouTube. That was fed into Sky. Before anybody can get it, they could actually see this, this level. And it absolutely, you know, uh, wound it out. But they're structurally built to see the truck coming and deal with it. Bigger organisations who can't, they're lumbering, they're frightened, they don't know how to react. Those are the vulnerable companies at the moment. Very, very interesting, uh, Mark. Tommy, a few thoughts uh, from, from uh, your side. Um, when, you're, when you're speaking low on the batting order, um, when everybody's talking about the same subject, there's always a risk that everyone's already going to have said things that you were going to say. So I didn't you mapped that risk, Tommy, before I mapped that risk. Yeah, um, so I... I I thought about what I would say last night by reading the newspaper um, and just listed out a few of the, um, um, the reputation victims. Toyota, EMI, UBS, Portsmouth Football Club, Greece, the Euro, Gordon Brown. Um, and I think comment that Lord Levine said, what do these all have in common? Two years ago they were golden and now they're all mud. Um, although in fact actually they're probably the same the same person, the same company the same entity um, that they were um, two years ago overvalued then undervalued now um, the difference is a, a catastrophic loss of reputation um, but um, losing your reputation is not like losing your virginity you can get your reputation back. Um, and uh, Lloyd's Not of London um, is clearly a terrific example of that, a company that um, 20 years ago was indelibly, the, the word Lloyd's was indelibly linked with scandal. Um, and now probably most people have even forgotten that that ever happened. Um, it's clearly more successful, more powerful, more profitable, 
and better managed than it probably ever has been in its past. Um, so I, I've worked with, um, over the last 25 years, many companies that have suffered um, reputation crises. Um, and so, yes, some observations on um, how it feels and things that you could do to make it better. Um, for an individual accused of some transgression, uh, things are relatively straightforward. Um, either they did it and hoped that no one would find out, um, or they didn't, um, and it's just basically unfair. Um, mostly it tends to be the first, John Terry, Tiger Woods, um, and so damage limitation is the order of the day. But for corporates, um, where we typically work, um, it's usually more complicated. Is our supplier using child labor? Was it outside sabotage or poor maintenance on our part? Um, did the sales manager really bribe our customer? Um, and many cynical people will say, well, of course they knew. Um, having seen it from the inside, most often the companies don't know. Um, and this is what I see as two of the critical issues in um, shaping reputation recovery, um, an information gap and a credi credibility gap. Um, when the crisis hits, getting solid, reliable information about what really happened will be critical. Um, and often you can no longer rely on the usual uh, sources and channels of information because they're typically involved as part of the problem. Um, becoming the reliable source for accurate information about what's happened allows you to shape the story, um, shape the evolution of the story, and it gets you ahead of the news curve. Um, the very worst mistake you can make, and I've seen this happen lots of times, is to provide wrong information, um, even if you do it with the best of intentions. Um, that means even your correction um, will not be believed, um, and you can never dig yourself out of the hole. Um, this is the, the, the second gap, the credibility gap. Um, famously, well, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Um, once you're reputationally challenged, your credibility is diminished. Um, then your explanation, your justification, um, your um, remediation is not going to be believed. Um, they're just sweeping it under the carpet. They're not actually um, uh, doing what they say. They're, ju they're, they're just dealing with the symptoms, not the problem. Um, and as your credibility shrinks, so your reputation um, drops lower and so does your credibility. Um, so recovery is that much more difficult and painful um, 
and typically it usually requires firing the chief executive. Um, so uh, my perspective, my, my, uh, my message is um, getting solid information from a trusted third party who can then back it up with their own reputation is probably the answer. Um, but then I would say that, wouldn't I? Thomas, you raise a very interesting point, which is possibly is in some clash with Mark's point, which is equally uh, important. Uh, speed versus, well, not maybe accuracy, but uh, that, as you say, if, if you go out with the wrong information or information that, that subsequently unravels in, to some extent, that you can then be damaged by a backlash against that and then you become an unbelieved spokesperson or, or an unbelieved corporation on what you're saying. How, how, how best uh, uh, can corporations uh, manage that uh, space where speed and accuracy may come into conflict? Um, well, I don't think there's a conflict between what Charles is talking about and what I'm talking about. Um, what Charles is talking about is delivery of information. What I'm talking about is content. Um, and you're absolutely right, it's critical. And you may well get away with saying, I this don't... Poor guy, this poor guy at Asda may not have been a loony, I don't well, know, but, but he said he was within a few minutes. <laughs> but I think the, 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 the interesting thing about that example was that um, the company went, as he said, within the hour, yeah. down to the factory in question, talked to the people involved, and what Charles was talking about was getting that answer out. What I'm talking about is getting an accurate answer. Um, and that, I mean, and if you're talking about a factory half an hour's drive from where the headquarters are, you can get that answer pretty quickly. But when you're talking about an accusation that um, your supplier uses child labor in Bangladesh, um, it may be more complicated. Okay. The problem is, no one is interested in accurate information any longer. I mean, newspapers don't deal in accurate information. Of course. That's a, that's a disgraceful you know slur upon a... You know that's true. Uh -huh. We're dealing with emotion and opinion. Yeah, yeah, well, no, it's not. It's not. I mean, I think it's very interesting following both the tabloid and the broadsheet issue about John Terry. Um, is that there was very little accurate information. There's only one fact that still hasn't been stood up and probably, allegedly, we all know what really happened. Um, but that's still, that is still being traded um, and is being very useful for the news agenda to sell more newspapers yeah. and, the, and the broadsheets to pontificate and take a, a high brand of it. The, 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 it is... Of, of course, I was, I was being provocative when I, you know, I said everything was accurate, but people are more interested in gossip, more interested in ac inaccuracies, and the problem for brands is how do you intersect to make people believe when trust has left? When the banking collapse came, it quickly followed um, by the, empire, uh, by the, 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 political, um, the political agenda and expenses scandal, where is the trust left from the audience and the public who now feel they have the power and no matter what we try to do to, to bring the facts and Toyota still haven't dealt with the facts of the issue yet. People are not interested in the facts, they're more interested in the emotion that they will be dead because the brakes don't work on the car. Yeah. 
Okay, Mark, well, we'll come back to the media's role in all this in a few minutes. But, um, uh, John, um, uh, just round off um, uh, these opening sort of parts. And then I'm going to come to the audience and open it up. Uh, uh, so everyone um, uh, be thinking about how we can take this fantastically interesting debate on. John. Well, I, I wanted to compliment what colleagues have said, in a sense, by painting on a slightly wider canvas, which is to look at the systemic risk and the systemic reputational challenge. Because, frankly, I'm a little bit surprised that we're sort of, so far this morning, we're addressing point source issues. And I don't think the point source issues are really what's important. I think we have a potentially catastrophic risk and reputation to the whole of our business model. And, you know, we're not going to address that by addressing the needs of individual companies. We're going to address it by addressing the lack of trust uh, about our collective values as wealth creators. I was, my snow story for yesterday is I, I was stuck in Berlin yesterday. And as I was sort of wandering in and out of some clients in the sort of glass and steel of modern German capitalism, the historian in me couldn't help remembering working in Berlin in the mid-80s, you know, not the glass and steel of Potsdamer Platz, but crawling through East German security through Checkpoint Charlie every time I wanted to go into East Berlin. And I think that's where some of the, the challenge to corporate uh, and capitalist uh, trust and values came from, because in that mid-80s period, again, a bit like Lloyds of London, more than 20 years ago, and we can forget about it, but that, <laughs> at that time... We had something bigger to worry about. We had the West and the East. We had capitalism and communism. We don't have that now. So actually, we've got time to indulge ourselves in worrying about capitalism. Uh, and if you know, the chairman of a very big investment bank thinks he can, uh, two years after uh, the credit crunch, he can cock a snoop at the American president, then I think he's running an incredibly big risk. And we've seen the regulatory response from the world's most important politician. And I think there is a real issue of lack of trust, and we know this from the Edelman, Edelman barometers and all the other indicators that the profession produces, the systemic danger of a lack of trust in our system. And I think a lot of business leaders are increasingly worried about that. You know, we were brought up to admire Jack Welch. We were brought up to admire shareholder value. We were brought up to admire that toughness and efficiency uh, that came with it, and there was much to admire. But Jeff Immelt made some comments recently in a speech that struck me. He said, the tough-mindedness of those great days of capitalism from the 80s was a great trait, but was replaced by meanness and greed in the worst days of the boom of the noughties, both of which were terrible traits. Uh, and I, I was interested recently, and nobody's yet mentioned Cadbury's this morning, you know, Cadbury's has come and Cadbury's has gone as an issue, but I think the underlying issue, which most of us in our respective luncheon parties and dinner parties are still talking about, is what it says about shareholder value. Because to me, it really challenges, not the deal, but the underlying issue, challenges what we are in business for if we're delivering value for shareholders. Because what, what uh, Kraft actually demonstrated was if the bidders prepared to match the defence's best shot, then the game's over. That's it. And that's actually what the Cadbury's management said. I think it's a pretty sad indictment of why most of us get up in the morning and come to work. You know, no matter what any other arguments might be about how stakeholders, the other people we have a duty of care to, our communities, our society, and I think that brings a pretty big risk as well. I think there is a risk there about 
public acceptance and attitudes to globalization, whether actually we want to be in a game, which it's very much my day job, to say rightly brings huge benefits to the global citizen. Um, Marjorie Scardino made a very interesting speech last month at the Cardiff Business School, and she was talking about very similar themes, and she had four rules of thumb for what modern shareholder value really ought to be about. Uh, her first one was morality. I don't think that's a word that's been used yet this morning, although we've got close to it. Her second one was a genuinely long-term view. Her third one was a central purpose that went beyond making money. And her fourth one, which I think brings us back to Jack Welch, is a hunger to succeed. So morality, the long-term, a purpose beyond money, but a classic capitalist value, a hunger to succeed. And I think if we can begin to rally around those principles, we can begin to do something about reputation and about tackling corporate risk. But let me end on a hopeful note. If you look at all that research about business reputation and business risk, all those barometers, all those indicators, again, as a historian, there's one really fascinating indicator that jumps off the page to me. We are about as popular in the business community at the moment as estate agents. And that is true in the whole of Europe, in the Western world, and in North America. But the picture in East Asia is completely different. The reputation of business, the standing of business, the trust in business values in the emerging economies across the globe is where it was in the Western Hemisphere 30 years ago. Because I actually think they've still got that hunger to succeed. They're still on the upward curve. They're not yet indulgent enough to worry about some of those other issues. In the CBI family of businesses, let me end with this point. I can't remember a time when these issues, but I'm thinking of the systemic issues, uh, and the system-wide risk is more debated. It's debated constantly and with great heart-searching. And if I summed up where most of my chief executives are, is they spent the last decade believing that protecting their reputation was about saying what they mean. They now decided that the public's calling them out on a much more important question, meaning what they say. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, John. That's a very, uh, raises some very, very important points. I just wanted, John, this was very much part of uh, a lot of the discussion um, uh, at Davos for obvious reasons. And one of the big issues is it, it is maybe simpler to identify the issues, as you said, Marjorie has done about how companies need to form themselves. But what are the metrics by which they are tested and who governs those metrics? The thing about shareholder value, in the end, people understand the mechanisms by which it works. Now, there are critics, as I raised with Philip, about the drive for uh, margins, which may not be achievable again uh, in the new environment we work in. But I think the important point maybe for us here and, and throwing it open to uh, the audience is what are the metrics by which we can test in, a, in an understandable and long-term way how a company is actually performing? Well, we got a bit into content a few moments ago. Um, yeah, I think moving from saying what you mean to meaning what you say stops these issues of reputation and risk being dealt with by a specialist department in the business or an external agency and starts it being owned and genuinely measured by the very bloodstream of the business. You know, if businesses are spending their time in the CBI family talking about reputation, the other thing they're talking about is supply chain management, strategic partnerships, joint venturing. And that's all about living their values 
actually having metrics that relate to the very thing they're doing. And isn't that Toyota's difficulty as of today? A corporation that has a stupendous reputation over its life cycle for the quality and reliability of its vehicles, the very bloodstream of its business, is challenged on that point, and that's the only way it will restore it, by demonstrating the metrics of its quality and its supply chain operation. Yeah. Lord Levine, do you feel that there is uh, that systemic, quite almost apocalyptic, John, I must say, view of that the whole business model has to be re-engineered uh, uh, for us to be able to genuinely uh, uh, not face some of the uh, risks that we had uh, throughout uh, 2008 and 2009? Well, I think one of the critical things we need to remember, if you think back to what Mark was saying about digital risk, uh, do what really needs to be re-engineered, I still think so much of it comes back to perception because Mark was talking about digital risk and then he mentioned what to me is the, the, the critical word, it was sky. Now, if you think back to where the uh, real problem started to appear, certainly in this country, it was with Northern Rock. Now, would you really think that Northern Rock was going to be the, uh, the progenitor of all this problem? And what actually happened? Here you had Northern Rock, relatively small business, and then all of a sudden, and Sky, and I mean, I, I quite enjoy watching Sky News, you know what's going on quickly, but if you if you rather foolishly decided to watch it all day, you would see the same story on and on and on and on and on and on and on. They did it with John Terry, but they, they did it with Northern Rock. And what did they show with Northern Rock? Ah, there's a problem with Northern Rock. Right, let's go down to the local branch, and we've got a queue of people there. And as soon as they put it on the television, there was a much bigger queue. And then they were queued all their other branches. Now, just think about it for a minute. How many people bank with Northern Rock... Those who banked there, their savings were safe up to £30,000 each. How many of those people who banked there actually had more than £30,000 in Northern Rock? And if they hadn't, and this happened with so many other institutions, if they hadn't all then rushed along, having seen it on Sky Television, to take all their money out, the problem would never have happened. Because, yeah, there was a problem there. But it wasn't as big as all that. And as we've seen so often recently, once this thing takes hold, the speed of it, as you rightly said, is so fast that it becomes, it takes on a life of its own and loses all touch with reality. And so I think that when, when these things uh, start to happen, you, yes, you do have to react very quickly. That's why the, the licking chicken thing was an important thing to do, to get in there and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's tell you what this is really all about. And I think if somebody had stopped, if, one, <laughs> if there was another similar news channel and said, just a minute, look, you know, how many of you are actually going to lose all your money there? Very, very few. Maybe people will listen about it, but it became a good story, and it took on such a life of its own. So the, the ability to see these things coming, the ability, even more importantly, I think, to deal with them immediately, because you're quite right, the, the speed of these things. As you said, I, I sit on the board of Haymarket, who have a huge number of publications, and are going through the same critical phase that all others in this industry are going through. How do you change from having a hundred printed magazines to having all this stuff online, which needs to be updated um, real-time all the time? It's a completely different world. And um, I think what we do find is that two very bright young people sitting in their back room 
can suddenly produce this new piece of media, if I can crudely put it that way, uh, which can knock out something that's been around for years in no time flat. It, it's a whole new world, and there's not too many people, I think, uh, certainly in, uh, not unless they're extremely young, have actually got their mind around it. As you rightly said, nobody mentioned digital. That's really what it's about today. Thank you, Lord Levine. Um, should we have uh, uh, some uh, questions, uh, please, from the audience? Many, many big issues uh, raised. Uh, there are microphones, and if you could say uh, your name and uh, where you're from, we'll take a lady here. We'll take a couple of starts. A lady here and a gentleman uh, right at the back, and another lady just here. We'll take those three to kick off with. Henrietta Royal, uh, Chief Operating Officer, City University. Um, how many chief executives and corporate boards do you think really understand it and spend any time talking about it? And secondly, how would you rate the response and recovery, if at all, of BAE and BP to the uh, little disasters they've had? Excellent. Thank you very much. There's a gentleman right at the back there. Yes, uh, it's Paul Cook from Marnix, uh, insurance broker at Lloyd's. Um, I just wanted to... Uh, follow up on the point that Lord Levine made um, in saying that um, I think what the panel are underestimating is the fact that people uh, in the public uh, domain have uh, access to far, far more information most of the time uh, about systemic risk than perhaps the companies themselves do. And I think people repeatedly underestimate the amount of underlying knowledge that there is in the public domain about key issues. For example, in the case of Northern Rock, the fundamental problems with the um, credit derivatives and the uh, mortgage-backed guarantees in the U.S. financial markets, which were uh, primarily underpinning that problem. And, for example, the fact that the guarantees provided by, uh, by the government for Northern Rock shareholders only came in at a later stage. And I think if you can pick up on that sort of information, um, people are rightly concerned at, at, um, at those particular problems. Perhaps the panel would like to just comment on that a little bit more. There's a, a lady just here. Thank you. Clary Godaru, um, non-executive of um, a number of organizations, including Lloyd's, um, not of London. Um, uh, my question is around the balance between uh, transparency um, and risk disclosure, and that against the positive management of message, which has been referred to by a number of the speakers. And just a very quick background to that. Given the drive at the moment um, for more disclosure, for greater disclosure, particularly of risk, for organizations to um, produce more information for regulators and for stakeholders, balanced against that is the fact that whether driven by um, short-termism amongst stock investors or driven by mischief, as in the chicken lick licking example, Organizations fear that the information they put out will be misused and therefore have this conflict as to how transparent they may be, how much they can disclose, and at the same time um, managing these messages in a positive manner to um, derive the outcome they desire. Great. Thank you very much, Claire. Well, some very important issues there. I think touch on the point from Henrietta. I mean, Lord Levine, how, how many boards get it in the, uh, in the parlance of uh, banking that we now uh, use? And interesting point raised about BE and BP and how they 
uh, uh, are building or have built uh, their reputations um, back. And I think probably connected to Paul's point and to an extent to Claire's, the notion of the public knowing more than you do, possibly. Interesting as well, Claire, the, the responsibilities that non-execs now have to carry or will have to carry uh, for the amount of days they do and the remuneration they get, I think raises some very important questions about where the actual, where the actual risk lies and how you judge that. Well, I think that um, we, we've certainly been spreading the message for a long time that uh, all companies, large and small, have to have regular reviews of the risks that they face, and not just financial risk, reputational risk, all types of risk. And uh, we hope that before too long the chief risk officer will become such a critical part of, of the fabric, certainly of the larger companies, that they'll merit a place on the board because they're the people who, who are paid to go and see what's happening and what's coming. And I think that um, <coughs> if, you, if you look at BA, if you look at BP, um, if you look at Northern Rock, I mean, they, they've had some difficult um, issues to deal with. And I'm, I'm not sure about the point that was made about, you know, people understand what's going on. If, if, you, if you take Northern Rock as an example, I mean, how many of their uh, depositors actually had the faintest idea about what was happening in mortgage-backed securities. They didn't. They pick up what they read in the paper, and uh, with the greatest respect again, um, <laughs> let's put it this way, you, you, uh, you can't believe everything you read in the press. <laughs> and I think for companies, the important thing is for them to have somebody there who's going to sort the wheat from the chaff and tell them what's really going on and where they've got a real issue that they're going to have to deal with long term and when they've got a real issue that they've got to have to deal with short term and going back to our favorite chicken licking they did deal with it short term they dealt with it dealt with it immediately if they let it keep keep going for another couple of weeks they'd probably been totally out of business mark what about uh, what would you be advising bae now <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. How long have we got? Um, I, I think that's quite interesting. There's been a systemic sort of a, a, attack at, at um, BA for, for a considerable amount of time. The NGOs, all activity. And they've, they were probably feeling you know, quite pleased with themselves. They managed to stop the debate and, and sort of buy themselves out of an issue. Um, I think I think I think the market move on. People get bored, can get bored, and in the old way, you you shove a hard hat down, put your head below the parapet, and hope that the sort of the hurricane would pass over you. Um, that that still can happen, but it's it's what you do to weather the storm. And I think the I, I think that the there, there will be another attack coming from BA. So you, 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 what I would be doing is actually saying this hasn't gone away. Don't think. This storm has passed. The issue might come back to you. You might get sucked into it. What do you do within an organization to train people, to find the best authoritative spokespeople, the structure to deal quickly with the issues, and what are the risks for doing that? Uh, I was talking to um, somebody from a FTSE 100 company um, in the summer, um, about Facebook. Um, he was called me in to have a chat. I don't really understand it, want to understand. And uh, I had gone to 
um, with the help of a uh, with the help of an analyst, gone to and actually found out that uh, this man's summer holiday was all over Facebook um, because one of uh, his daughter's friends had a camera and was taking lots of pictures, and it was one quite embarrassing picture of him with another leading businessman. So he had nothing to do with Facebook. His, his, his daughter had a friend on Facebook. So where is your privacy now? The, 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 it'll be back to clever people who sometimes luck out at stumbling on that picture. Um, and the strength for BR any system is how can you defend yourself? Have you got the systems and the analytics to tell you what is happening? Then can you prepare to deal with those things? And have you got the structure and organization that actually puts a head on, so let's, let's get away from it and hope it goes away, or can we face up and actually challenge it? Where PR folk are pretty good. They haven't, you know, advertising agencies and the big communicators, you had these big motors, financially adept, actually just piling through the waves. People are very good at actually using the winds and the, and, and, and the currents to chart their, their vessel through the, the and, and they're very agile in understanding how the news agenda changes um, and how you are reacting and you know how a Sunday newspaper reacts how it can set the agenda how, 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 the, how the commentary works um, and, and hopefully you will be with BA you have systems now to see the trouble in, in the same way some sort of seismograph to detect the tremors and, 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 and create have great disaster recovery situations right at the heart of what they do. Philip, you touched on this, yeah, you touched on this in yours about the, the complexity issue and also where does risk sit and did a lot of corporations become thinking, well, it's a regulator's job, the risk management for me, and actually I need to get on with the, the marginal things that are more important. I mean, Philip, where, what are the points that have been raised from the floor? Well, I, I think Paul Cook is, is fundamentally right that, um, that reputations spread very rapidly and, and I think those reputations are broadly on average accurate, which is not to say that, um, uh, that um, wrong messages, rumours and so on, whether perpetuated by newspapers or, or in other ways, um, are, are not spread and don't sometimes take hold. And I think Northern Rock is a poor counterexample, actually, of, um, of, of that point because the one thing that... Um, we know about Northern Rock is that there was a huge amount of uncertainty and it's not unreasonable for people to behave in that way when there was a great deal of uncertainty and that uncertainty was um, uh, spread as a result of the um, both the regulatory response and also the central bank response where they gave the distinct impression um, that they didn't quite know how to um, uh, how, how to react given the tripartite re regime which had been developed and the Bank of England's and FSA and Treasury's um, separate roles and, and, and so on. Yeah. Sorry, Lord Levine, yes. I want to come back on, on the point of BAE, which um, is an area which I spent an awful lot of my working life dealing with. Um, there, there was a little notice uh, comment in the press the last couple of days about BAE, which is, if you think about it, that very much falls into the too-big-to-fail category. Now, why? Because it's the largest defence contractor in the country, has by far the lion's share of the defence budget. But why was there so much concern about this particular case? Because, uh, and why did they plead guilty on what was basically a rather technical accounting charge? Because if they had been convicted in this case, which was effectively bribery of public officials, that immediately under EU rules, rules them out of bidding on all 
EU government contracts for, I think, a minimum of two years. Now, that would have meant the end of their business. What would that mean, um, quite apart from their employees and everybody else, but for the defence industry in this country, it would have been a terrible mess. So, you know, we're all talking about too big to fail relating to banks. There are other areas where it could have a devastating effect, and I think we have to realise that as well. And how do you aim off for that? How do you protect yourself against that? I don't know. That's very difficult. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. On that same point, um, the BAE probably doesn't care that much about its reputation in, um, the, amongst the readers of The Sun. They care a great deal about what Bob Ainsworth thinks about them. He's their customer. Um, if you look at BP, they have a slightly broader interest in what um, the, the, the mass market thinks because they do have petrol stations, but it's a relatively small part of their business. Um, what companies think, and your question about how well do boardrooms understand these issues, probably better than you think because they understand who their constituency is and a great many of them um, are perfectly prepared to weather a short-term reputation storm because they know it will just blow over but then there are other companies and Asda would be a good example where public perception is pretty important because after all I can just go down the road and go to Sainsbury's um, and I think there's an important issue about where, um, where brand sits in public perception, how much it matters. Um, and I think there's also a, a, an issue about um, what kind of um, reputation you really have versus what kind of perception. The brand John Terry, frankly, is... Um, largely hot air created by newspapers. Um, he's a very good footballer, and what he does when he goes out to the football pitch is what really matters. That's the real world. Everything else about John Terry is hot air, and um, that's going to—it's it's a balloon that will blow around according to which way the wind is blowing. Um, brand Asda and Brand BAE—that has real substance behind it. And that's what they care about. And, and confusing the John Terry reputation issues and the BAE reputation issues will give you a, 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 um, a wrong view of how people are managing things. And I would say that boardrooms do understand these issues better than you think. John, do you agree with them? Um Toy's point there, that, it's, uh, that there is much more understanding. It's interesting the point you made, which is what I said in the opening, is consumer-facing and non-consumer-facing businesses do have to have very different attitudes, or may have very different attitudes. I, I would have thought, though, Lord Levine, that I'm sure uh, the defence industry has changed hugely uh, in terms of what it considers to be its external reputation over time. But, John, um, what, what's your thought on those issues? Well, I guess what was behind my comments were earlier was, whilst, of course, you can make the distinction between consumer-facing and brands that have different um, customers, uh, we all have stakeholders. And I think it would be a huge complacency on behalf of the rest of business to think that they didn't need to look at the world in the way that Asda looks at the world. And I'm very sympathetic with Paul's comment about, you know, 
individuals in society and the information they now have because of the technological opportunities. Clearly that information will be incomplete, it will be partial, it will take them down some blind alleys. But let me just use the analogy with the medical profession. We know within the medical profession that the world of GPs has been turned upside down in how they interrelate with their customer, the patient, because of the information that is now available. When we go into a GP surgery and ask questions about our doctor, we've probably done quite a lot of research on the internet if we're bothered about the issue, and we go in as some sort of semi-expert. Quite often, as Lord Levine said, we might draw the wrong conclusions, but we have drawn conclusions. And I think uh, we have to treat our stakeholders as grown-ups. More questions. The lady there, the gentleman here. Anyone on this side, on the, on the risk-averse side? Yes, the gentleman there. Hello, my name is Sue Primer. I'm from a company called Excelli, and we supply IT to the financial services industry. My question, though, is about the reputation of risk itself and our responsibility for increasing public understanding of the necessity of risk and the proper management of risk, not just in the markets. You see this in issues like measles, mumps and rubella vaccination, uh, climate change, that there is a poor public understanding of risk and the necessity of risk and the reality of risk. And in the markets, you combine that potentially with a poor public understanding of the financial, service, of the financial sector. Uh, are there good examples and can we use digital media to have an intelligent conversation about those issues? So is there such a thing as no risk, obviously, which maybe the public don't really quite understand? There's a gentleman here. Hello, Richard Perry from India Savvy. I, I help people manage risk in India. Um, just a quick question. I, I get the impression boards and big companies, there's somebody in the company that manages risk and then these two things called uncertainty and complexity come along and spoil it all for them. Um, surely those two things are the definition of risk and therefore are people forgetting do they actually know what risk is? Um, that's just picking up on the point. My question is, um, in terms of reputation, it's worth money, it's worth share price. When companies are going into the, the markets of the future, or such as India, China, whatever, the emerging markets, they, those reputations don't actually mean very much. So if you're KFC and you don't do a veggie option in India, you're going to get your shops torched. Or, or if you're Coca-Cola, really, nobody, nobody cares, really, because they've got their own brands. So to what extent, as the future markets, does our reputation that we have in the existing markets, do we think it's worth anything when we're going into the, the new markets? And how do we learn to start from the beginning, basically? Thank you, Richard. Gentleman here. Um, John Taylor, uh, Sports Impact, uh, sports marketing agency. And um, just an observation, really. The, uh, in the sports uh, world, we've known for a long time that uh, the media drive and make the news, particularly tabloid press and, uh, as was referred to earlier, breaking news on Sky. Um, I'm not sure that large corporations um, are aware of how the media drive and make the news, and also now that with social media, uh, the consumer, the public, also drive and make the news. I, I, I'm not convinced that they are really aware about that. Thank you very much. Uh, Lord Levine, um, public understanding and what is, what is your duty, or members of the panel, on, 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 on enabling the public to understand what risk um, is? Well, two points. Firstly, the, the question was asked, you know, companies have uh, departments to deal with risk and manage it. They don't. I mean, you can't, you can't say... 
I've looked at the risk and I will make sure it doesn't happen. What those departments have to do is to make sure when it happens, not if it happens, there's always something going on, that there's a program in place to be able to deal with it promptly and, and quickly. And so I think the companies who are ready for it are the ones who are going to be able to deal with it. They, they, they won't know where that risk is coming from. Nobody will know where it's coming from. But they will at least have mapped out the possible sources and have a way of dealing with it. And on this question of the reputational risk itself, I think it's quite right. I mean, who really knows the truth about the MMR vaccine? Who really knows the truth about climate change? And the public see all this stuff. They believe some of it, all of it. Some of them don't even bother to read, but quite a number of them do. And then they see things where there is huge overreaction to risk. You know, you, you, you look at the stuff about children's playgrounds. You know, if you take all the swings away, take all the slides away because the children might fall off and cut their knee. Well, I mean, we all knew, know that. It's, it's part of growing up. It's like saying that, uh, you know, you shouldn't make everything too clean because if children from birth are not exposed to any germs at all, then something that hits them afterwards is going to be far more serious. So I think that um, large companies, medium-sized, smaller companies, the financial services industry, everyone else has to be able to recognize that risk is there and have a sensible and responsible way of dealing with it, a sensible and responsible way of putting it across the public. And I, I'm afraid we are all having a go at the media. But, you know, a, a calm, uh, reasoned explanation of what's happening when something has suddenly occurred in the world, frankly, doesn't sell newspapers. You know, banner headlines or breaking news on Sky on, my God, that was happened now, is much more attractive. So I think, uh, the, in my opinion, the media have a very heavy responsibility here to present things, as you say, with the John Terry issue. Yeah, he's a good footballer. Okay, he had an affair with somebody else. So, so millions of other people. Um, which is really the more important? And which sells newspapers? John, as a as CBI and someone who represents business to the outside world, what is the duty on you to be also in an explaining role in terms of the public's understanding of what risk is and also how risk makes the world work? People have banks take risk. You know, people take risk. <laughs> it, it's a major concern. I mean, as a lobbyist, one of my biggest challenges is how legislators and parliamentarians misunderstand risk the Dangerous Dogs Act phenomenon. One of the last uh, conversations I had with Tony Blair as Prime Minister, he was bemoaning the fact that so much of the pressures on a modern government come from a public concern about risk and the way that politicians then feel the need to over-respond. And I think, you know, there is some methodology here uh, that we sometimes forget. I think if you overlay health and safety methodology over the financial crisis, I'm being oversimplistic in the interests of making a swift point, you would draw a differentiation that I think some financial markets failed to draw in their own domain between risk and hazard. But that is well known within the health and safety profession. You've got to address things that are low risk but enormous hazard just as you address the opposite. So there is a major problem with the understanding of risk in society and how those who have responsibility for society, and particularly business leaders and politicians, address risk, uh, a major challenge that we've not properly tackled. Thank you very much, John. Just, yes, briefly, Philip, yeah? 
Yeah, I just want to say something that's perhaps counterintuitive for an academic. I, I think clever people tend to overvalue cleverness and for, formal um, education, and we tend to approach these problems of educating society about risk by, oh, let's teach people what an equity and a bond is and have financial education in the curriculum and, and all the rest of it. But actually, people begin to understand risk at a quite a deep and sophisticated and intuitive level, even though they can't articulate it, when they're exposed to the consequences of their own actions. And I think this is another uh, aspect of the problem of, of moral hazard, where we've tried to um, shelter people from the effects of financial risk and so on. And just to relate it to, to John's point of much earlier, um, I'm just editing a book at the, at the moment, and one of the authors made the very interesting point that we call moral hazard moral hazard and not risk hazard because when we shelter people from the consequences of their own actions in the financial world we don't just encourage them to do more risky things we actually encourage them to do imprudent and um, often rather immoral things both within companies and also as individuals whether it be lying on uh, mortgage proposal forms or, or whatever yeah. yes go mark yes that was a really <clears throat> interesting question about how do we get people to understand risk you know how, and i think the, the one final takeaway is that everything now, the media, the speed of the genie, is the fact that we don't have the ability to actually argue over, uh, over questions. Everything has to be a soundbite. Whoever comes up with a pithy soundbite wins. And that's a dilemma, because I think we're, we're generating a media, we're generating, an up and, uh, we're educating people actually not to be able to answer the questions, actually, more importantly, they're not be able to pose the questions. And I think that's, that, that, that's a big issue. Thank you very much, Mark. Sadly, uh, the clock is uh, against us. I just want to say at the end, before I hand back to Julia, a huge thank you to an illuminating and fascinating uh, 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 discussion from the panel. Uh, Philip, Tommy, uh, Lord Levine, Mark and John. Thank you very much. Thank you. Kamal, you threatened to not do these again because the media was being attacked. I will not allow that to happen. You must do more. That was riveting. Thank you. Great thanks again to Cass Business School, and I rightly stand corrected by Lord Levine Lloyds. Let me repeat that. Lloyds. Um, our next event is on the 4th of March. It's an uh, invitation on your chairs with the Financial Times and Taylor Bennett on political predictions at the end of an era. Um, you, if you have not already joined our lovely club, you may come to, I think, two events before we say no more, you must join. But it's been a wonderful morning, very illuminating, very topical. Particular thanks also, please, to Kamal Ahmed in the chair.